1: Hi, this is Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. You are listening to Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul. And tonight's topic is, I'll tell you, it's a doozy. It is a doozy. Tonight, I am going to reveal the medical procedure that is four times deadlier than the death penalty if you're under age 65. If you're over age 65... This medical intervention is 10 times as deadly as the death penalty. This is shocking. So you guys probably wonder how I come up with these topics. So as many of you know, I went to uh, Thailand to learn more about Internet marketing and organization, how to get more things done. And so somebody suggested that I sign up for something called Start.me. Well, Start.me gives you a news feed which is something I'd never had before. So I got the news. And headline, Alabama inmate coughs and heaves for 13 minutes into execution. I said, wait a minute. No way. (laughs) We kill patients quicker than that all the time. And so I read this thing, and I said, Jesus Christ, could it be? Could it be that medicine is actually more efficient at killing people than even getting a death sentence? Could it be that the real death sentence is not your illness but your medical care? I said, oh, my God, let me look into this. <laughs> well, so I looked into this. So what did I find? And this is it's, it's interesting information, but I'm going to give you the information about the death penalty then we're going to compare the information about the corresponding medical intervention. And, of course, I wrote a joke, so we'll talk about the joke. And then I'll tell you what you can do to uh, keep yourself from facing a fate worse than a death sentence. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people, right? They call me, oh, Dr. Dance, can you help me? Oh, I've got XYZ condition. Oh, my God, it's like a death sentence. I said, so this thing, death sentence has a big emotional charge, big emotional energy. So let's talk about a death sentence. What is a death sentence? All right. So a death sentence is you come before the court. You are accused of something. Your innocence or guilt, I want to establish up front, is irrelevant. has nothing to do with anything. We're not talking about innocence or guilt. And if you look at the Innocence Project with people being exonerated from crimes for which they received the death penalty, you realize that getting a death penalty has nothing to do with innocence or guilt. So we're not discussing that. All we're discussing here is process. So you have the stress of being accused. You have the stress of going through a trial. You have the stress of then facing a judge who bangs his gavel and says, death penalty. You are sentenced to death. So you receive a death sentence. So then what happens? Well, let's take a look at uh, in Florida. Well, in Florida, if you got the death penalty... It costs $51 million a year for the state of Florida to enforce the death penalty. That's above what it would cost uh, for a life penalty, which means you spend the rest of your life behind bars. And based on 44 executions in Florida that they carried out since 1976, that amounts to $24 million for each execution. This is not just any $24 million. This is $24 million that the state of government had to reach into their pocket and spend on enforcing the death penalty instead of spending it on parties, gifts for faithful followers, whatever, perks. $24 million for each execution. All right. Gotcha. Now, let's take a look at something else. In all of 2016, there were only 19 executions. These are government-authorized killings, by the way, via lethal injection. So the question then is which is safer, the death penalty or, well, medical procedure. We're going to reveal that as we go, but let's just, take, let's just get a real grip here on the death penalty. So the United States is the fifth largest world executor. This is from Amnesty International, and they're, you know, we'll trust their numbers because they track such things. And at the end of the day, only 16% of people who are sentenced to death, this is a death sentence, ever die at the hands of the government that sentenced them. Now, of course, people die all the time, right? So all we're talking about is how many of the people actually sentenced to death die at the hands of the government that sentenced them to death. And this is, in particular, the United States government. The answer is 16%. 16%. And how long does uh, the average death row guy wait between sentencing and death? The unlucky 16% who actually do die? Answer 15 years. So 16%, 15 years, more or less, 1%. Per year is the maximum lethality of the death sentence. So I want to take a look at this. This is what they say now. The average is fifteen years. Now, if we say the average, we take them at the literal meaning, that means of the 16% who die, more or less, eight are going to die in fifteen at or before fifteen years. So really then. Our annual death rate is about half a percent. So, if you get a death sentence, a little death sentence, you go before the judge, bangs that gravel, tells you, I have sentenced you to death, then your chance of dying the next 12 months is more or less half a percent. For your information, your chance of dying from all causes in any one year of your life, if you're in perfect health, is more or less. 8%, And so we, we can add the 0.5% to the 0.8%. Or if you want to be optimistic, you can think of it as part of the 0.8%. For our calculations, this really does not matter. But let's, be, let's take the most negative uh, estimate we can of this and say it increases your chances of death by 0.5%. Okay, so now your chances of death in any one given year is more or less 1.3%. All right, but the point of the matter is your chances of dying are only 0.5% due to the death penalty. So it's increased your chances by half a percent per year. Remember that. We're going to refer back to this. Just by the way, in case you want to know, the average age of the person sentenced to die in the United States is 28 years old. Interesting. But the key here is your chances of death from the death penalty only increases your chances of death, your annual chances of death, by 0.5%. Okay? And, you know, this is reliable information from uh, Wikipedia and people who keep track of all this stuff. So let's take a look at the uh, medical, uh, medical side of things. So, what's happening there? Now, as many of you know, I went to medical school. And so I witnessed a lot of things. And the idea that you can give somebody an injection and they don't go to sleep in 13 minutes, I'm telling you that anesthesiologists will be friggin' fired on the spot. On the spot. So you should be able to take a person from breathing on their own to not breathing on their own I mean, if you're really slow, two minutes. And at that point, two minutes in, if you don't have that tube in that person's throat, they're not getting any oxygen, and they're going to die because there's no spontaneous breathing going on. Now, if you're really good, you can position your airway, put a mask over their their face, and you can um, bag and mask them. But that's, like, pretty primitive. So having given anesthesia myself, Having done anesthesia and having successfully, I mean, 100% success, put people to sleep in two minutes, I'm like, how incompetent can you friggin' be? It takes 13 minutes and the guy is still coughing and heaving. I have no clue what they're doing in these prisons, but obviously they need to borrow a page from the medical handbook because we kill more folks. In medicine by accident than these folks do on purpose. But the point is that's how deadly uh, a death sentence is. Let's take a look at the medical industrial complex and of course as always we don't make accusations, we only take confessions and we are going to take a look at what they have to say for themselves. Now, I like to look at the rosiest picture possible. So what we're going to do is we're going to check out the Mayo Clinic. As, you, <laughs> as many of you know they're my favorite uh, first to quote. Uh, because we don't, want to, we don't want to have any negative bias here. So this is what the uh, Mayo Clinic says about anesthesia. So what can you expect? And they tell you before the procedure, you can undergo general anesthesia, your anesthesiologist is gonna to talk to you, and they ask you some questions about your health history, your prescription medications, your allergies, your past experiences with anesthesia, And this will help your anesthesiologist choose the medications that will be safest for you. And so this is a much nicer, much more gentle procedure than being accused, say, of murder, innocent or guilty. Let's just presume you're innocent just by the way. So this process, this interrogation, is much lighter, much easier than, you know, the accusation process accusing you of a crime for which the penalty might be death. During the procedure, we can look at this as the trial itself. Your anesthesiologist usually delivers the anesthesia medication through an intravenous line in your arm. So you're going to sit still with a smile on your face, or maybe they sedated you. Actually, usually they put the line in you're awake, and uh, you get the anesthesia through the line. This is like lethal injection. Okay? Medicines go into the IV. Sometimes you may be given a gas that you breathe for a mask. Children may prefer to go to sleep with a mask. Now, we all know kids don't like needles. Once you're asleep, the anesthesiologist... Again, this is you just got your lethal injection. May insert a tube into your mouth and down your windpipe. The tube ensures you get enough oxygen and protects your lungs from blood and other fluids like stomach fluids. You'll be given muscle relaxants before doctors insert the tube to relax the muscles in your windpipe. They're like, why can't they do this for the prisoners sentenced to lethal injection, right? Sounds pretty nice and pleasant, right? Your doctor may use other options, such as laryngeal airway masks, to help manage your breathing during surgery, and so the anesthesia care team monitors you continuously while you sleep. He or she will adjust your medications, breathing, temperature, fluids, and blood pressures as needed. Any issues that occur during the surgery are corrected with additional medications, fluids, and sometimes blood transfusions. And blood transfusions may sometimes be necessary, such as during complicated surgeries. There's only a few qualify. Anesthesia team monitors your condition, delivers blood transfusions when needed, and blood transfusions may involve risks. These risks are greater in people who are older, have lower red blood cell volume, or just undergoing complex heart surgeries. So we've got this situation going on where everything is really just sounding pretty, pretty good. I mean, you're cared for, you know, you've got this team hovering over you. And after the procedure, when the surgery is complete, The anesthesia medicines are stopped and you slowly wake, either in the operating room or the recovery room, and you'll probably feel groggy and a little confused when you first wake. And you may experience common side effects, such as nausea, vomiting, dry mouth, sore throat, shivering, sleepiness, and mild hoarseness. But don't worry. You may also experience other side effects after you awaken from anesthesia, such as pain side effects depending on your individual condition and the type of surgery. Your doctor may give you medication after your procedure to reduce pain and nausea. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's all they tell you. They don't tell you your risk of dying. In fact, I don't even think they mention it. Don't even mention that. Right. So that's the medical industrial complex's basic description of a procedure that carries a death rate higher than the death penalty itself. So anesthesia, is it anesthesia or just a more humane method of execution? So let's take a look at the kill rate. Let's take a look at the kill rate. (laughs) Proof of the pudding is in the uh, experience, right? So here we have uh, healthland.time.com 2011. So that's pretty recent. It's very recent. And the importance of understanding how recent this is is Um, that in the United States, they do almost no research on the mortality of anesthesia. So let's take a look and see what our friends in Germany have uncovered. Under the knife, study shows rising death rate from general anesthesia. Uh Aha. So the death rate from anesthesia had been falling for a very long time, and now it's on the rise again. And so uh, here is what they say. People have always been afraid of general anesthesia. Many fear they won't wake up from this artificial sleep. Actually, more of a coma. Of course, drug-induced and reversible. In the 1940s, for every 1 million patients operated on or under full anesthesia, 640 died. By the end of the 1980s, fatalities were down to 4 for every million, thanks to modern safety standards and better medical training. This is the 1980s. That's when I went to medical school. However, a recent article published in the German Medical Association's official International Science Journal shows that after decades of decline, the worldwide death rate during full anesthesia is back on the rise to about seven patients in every million. The number of deaths within a year after a general anesthesia is frighteningly high, one in 20. I'll repeat that, one in 20. Those of you who are um, challenged uh, with your math, that comes to about uh, you know 5%. 5% of people who undergo general anesthesia will be dead within one year because they underwent anesthesia. That's amazing, isn't it? Pretty impressive. Now, remember, we calculate your chances of dying each year from the death penalty. Is only half a percent. That's for the first 15 years. Now, for anesthesia, they've only went out one year into the future. They didn't go out 15 years. So we're just going to take that one year. So literally, that chances, your chances of dying from the death sentence. You've got a death sentence, right? You went before the judge. he banged his gavel. He said, I sentence you to death your chances of dying in that next year as a result of that death sentence is only half a percent. Had you instead willingly undergone general anesthesia, your chances of being dead in the next year would be 5%, 10 times higher than the death penalty. Makes you want to go out and commit a crime, huh? Okay. However, uh, they, they go on to uh, apologize for this. They say, well, indeed, Older patients are the heart of the matter. The rise in deaths from anesthesia-related causes is not because of a decrease in the quality of anesthesiological care. Huh? Okay. It's due to the fact that more and more older patients are being operated on, says Dr. Andre blah, blah, blah. But wait, but wait. If under 65 is 1 in 20, over 65 is... Well, let's let's, let's talk about that. It's one in 10, so 10%. So if you're over 65, your chances of dying the year after anesthesia is 10%. Now, your average 65-year-old in the United States has a chance of dying 1%, 1% chance of death, just in general. So this is actually 10 times a person's natural death rate. You've really elevated their death rate quite a bit just by submitting them to anesthesia. And these are deaths that occur in the one year after the surgery. So, in other words, this counting anesthesiology-related death as a death that occurs within 24 hours of anesthesia doesn't really reflect uh, what's going on or the whole picture. And, like, the death penalty, you know, I think it's reasonable, the death penalty to measure, you know, after the, the judge says, hey, you will die by state execution, what percent, once they receive the death sentence, the death sentence actually die, answer 16%. I think if many people knew that a death sentence meant a lifetime risk of 16% of actually dying at the hands of the government, they would probably shrug their shoulders. And most people considering capital crimes would probably look this up, and that's probably why the death penalty is not much of a deterrent for a crime. We're going to talk later about why half the death penalty and the death penalty actually is very important, and why, if so many people, so few people are actually killed by the death penalty, why even have it? But uh, I've got an answer for that. I've been thinking about that. And so this is what they say. Uh, So they give you these alarming statistics, which is that basically one in 20 under age uh, 65, more or less, dies within the year of their anesthesia, that's 5%. Over the 65 group, it's uh, 10%. Well, that's huge. That's huge. Then they go on to give you information that totally contradicts those numbers. And so uh, this doctor says it's just because older people are getting operated on. Huh? Older people are getting operated on? What about these younger people who are experiencing this excess death through their anesthesia? So this explanation by this doctor has nothing to do with the observation. Okay. Anesthesia can be particularly risky on older patients with heart problems. So if you have heart problems, if you have high blood pressure, and an operation means stress for the body. All right, here we go. For a patient to die in the operating table is rare. But for patients with serious problems in their medical history, post Traumatic stress after a long operation can, under some circumstances, lead to death. Now, some circumstances can be 10%, right, 1 in 10, but that's still alarmingly high. So complications relating to anesthesia are rare. You can usually be under control very quickly. In exceptional cases, there may be an allergic reaction to something in the anesthetic or the insertions of in the breathing tube into the windpipe doesn't work right away. So these are just things that can go wrong, but no big deal. And this is an important thing to understand. And this is what I think that people who administer capital punishment can really learn from. To begin anesthesia, so to begin your lethal injection, a high dose of anesthetic is required. You guys can't be shy. You've got to push those drugs. Give a lot early, often. That usually sends a patient's blood pressure plummeting downward. Everybody reacts differently, however. So, in other words, to begin with, high dose usually sends blood pressure plummeting. That's pretty dangerous, right there. It is telling you this is usually dangerous. Everybody reacts differently, however, and not always as expected. It can sometimes be extremely difficult to estimate how much anesthetic to administer to an overweight patient. Okay, you guys, doing capital punishment, lethal injection, are you listening? It can sometimes be extremely difficult to estimate how much anesthetic to administer to an overweight person. Like, go for it, guys, double the dose, this doctor explains. And he notes that an overdose can lead to rapid decline in blood pressure and require immediate administration of drugs to raise blood pressure. And this is, uh, this is, this is really shocking. So this, this is all the explanation they give. And remember, this is 2011. This is pretty recent. Um, and they go on to talk about the epidemiology. This is another article. This one is from um, United States uh, National Library of Medicine.gov. They talk about the epidemiology of anesthesia-related death in the United States. This is 1999 to 2005, so they stop at 2005. All right, that's okay. We can forgive that. We'll get the information. You we'll know, take what we can. And so they tell us that mortality risk associated with anesthesia has been the subject of extensive research for many decades. I think there's a red flag there. <laughs> so if something is being studied, the death risk has been studied for decades. That means there's a pretty big death risk. There's something to study here. So the United States, during 40, 1948 to 52, Dr. Beecher and Todd found the anesthesia-related death rate was 640 deaths per million procedures. All right. In the advent of new anesthesia techniques, the mortality risk has declined from one death in a thousand to about one in one hundred thousand or ten in a million in the nineteen nineties and early two thousands. Ten in a million, by the way, is pretty high. Complications of anesthesia during labor and delivery and systemic complications such as hyperthermia and malignancy due to anesthesia. Are not counted. So in other words, if a lady dies of anesthetic complications during labor and delivery, they didn't count it as an anesthetic death. If a person gets anesthesia and their blood, temp- their body temperature goes up so high as a result of the anesthesia that they die, they don't count those deaths. Okay. So here's your scientific study, right? Okay. And they say it's likely the case definition we used in this study may have missed a portion of anesthesia-related mortality. You think? <laughs> Particularly those deaths in which complications and adverse events of anesthesia played only a contributory role. Now, get this. The person's 100% dead. Got it? If anesthesia paid a 10% part in that role, in that death, without anesthesia, the person would still be alive. So it's reasonable, then, to count all deaths in which anesthesia is a contributing factor and in the case of of tort law there's a concept of contributory negligence that means if your negligence your failure to do something contributed to the bad event that followed then you are responsible yeah and so if you combine, combine contributory negligence which means if your actions in this case anesthesia contribute to the bad outcome in this case death Combined that with joint and several liability, that would mean then that the anesthesia, even though listed as a contributing cause of death, is actually just as much a cause of death as any other of the co-contributing causes. Why? Because without it, the person would be alive. So just trying to explain to you the obfuscation that means the deliberate concealment of this concept and responsibility and muddying the waters that this study is engaging in. Okay. So they're saying, ah, the anesthesia played only a contributory role. Well, duh, the person would be alive if they hadn't had the anesthesia. This is an important concept. Especially if all you guys, all you uh, grandmothers or potential grandmothers or mothers out there considering anesthesia for childbirth, uh, if you die in anesthesia, they don't even count it as an anesthesia-related death. So there. Okay, so their study found, get this, 42.5% of anesthesia-related deaths happened in therapeutic use. What does that mean? It means the doctor did not make a mistake. He did not overdose the patient. Now, they have a few more words in here to confuse you, so let's get the whole confusing sentence. Our study found that 42.5% of anesthesia-related deaths were attributable to adverse effects of anesthetics in therapeutic use. So, in other words, the person got a therapeutic dose. The doctor did not overdose the people. So if the increase of anesthesia outside the traditional operating room setting continued monitoring of the safety of anesthesia is warranted. And they go on to say that in America, we really have difficulty measuring the true impact of anesthesia and anesthesia-related death because... Anesthesia is given in so many different settings, and in many cases, it's not even reported in terms of the outcome. All right, so Americans undergo an average of 9.2 surgical procedures in their life. And so, if, let do some more math, they challenge our math skills. So, if 9.2 surgical procedures is the number an average person undergoes in their lifetime. And it's a 5% chance of death after each surgical procedure. Then 9 times 5 is 45. So if we can more or less estimate that 45% of deaths in the United States, anesthesia is actually a contributing factor. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. And the next time your relative dies, ask yourself, did they have surgery the year before their death? Hmm, interesting. And so... And it is true. There are lots of studies being done to try and make surgery safer. Why? Because it's such a big cash cow. You'd like a person to be able to undergo as many surgeries as possible in their lifetime before you kill them, you see, because then you maximize revenue. So what is going on? Oh, so this is, a, this is another study, and what it says is, under modern practices, Americans experience multiple invasive interventions across their lifespan with increasing frequency as they age. Considering the significant risk of surgery and anesthesia, initiatives to improve the safety and outcomes of surgery would have a broad impact on public health. In other words, what they're saying is if they minimize the uh, mortality or death from each of these procedures, it would probably even increase life expectancy because people are having so many of these deadly procedures. So if you have a procedure like anesthesia that kills 4% of everyone who submits to it within a year of the procedure, obviously, you're having 10 of those procedures a year that's responsible for the death of more or less 40% of citizens. And literally, if people stop submitting to anesthesia, they probably increase their life expectancy easily by five years. So what's the big deal here? What's the difference between anesthesia and the death penalty? Well, first of all, on death row, as we said, a prisoner has a 16% death rate. And half of those prisoners are going to die in 15 years, which means more or less half a percent per year are going to die. You take the same population, 100 people, we'll call them healthy, At least they're alive and breathing. Give them anesthesia, and what do you get? If they're young and healthy, you get a 4% death rate within a year of the surgical procedure, okay, or 5%, rather. You get a tenfold increase in death rate. Who pays for the lethal injection slash death from anesthesia? Answer, the victim does. Well, on death row. Who pays for that procedure? The government. The government has literally got to dig into its pocket to pay for this. How much? Well, if we let Florida be any kind of guide, it's $24 million for each each death. Well, that's pretty outrageous. <clears throat> so obviously, you'd rather have people die by anesthesia, because then... The victim is paying for his own killing, and he kill a lot more, and it's 10 times more effective. So, why have the death penalty if it costs so much for each person you actually kill? And it's so friggin' ineffective. There could only be one reason. The reason for the death penalty. Is simply to establish the right of the government to kill its citizens. Period. That's it. That's all. Having a death penalty in the books simply establishes the right of the government to kill its citizens. That is all it's there for. And this establishes that the government can kill people at will for political reasons. Now, I say political reasons. I don't mean if you dissent or don't agree with the government. No. Although, maybe that's one reason. But the real reason is just for political reasons. In other words, a policy. The government can make a policy that we like to kill a certain group of people or class of people, and then here you are. Now uh, the government has established that it has the right to kill people. And where do we see the government exercising this right? Where do we see the government exercising this right to kill in pretty large numbers? The first place uh, where it became extremely obvious, egregious, appalling, and shocking is in the Medicare system. So when I read the Inspector General's report, Medicare report, I believe it was 2012 more or less, about death in the Medicare program, and by their own report, they estimate 180,000 Medicare recipients were killed that year by medical care made possible through the Medicare program. What happened? Was anyone arrested? No. Was anyone investigated? No. Was anyone charged? No. I was shocked. I mean, my jaw dropped open. Like, what? How can you even say the Medicare program is a benevolent program when it kills 180,000 Americans a year? I mean, let's look at Zika. Zika doesn't kill 180,000 babies a year. What about Ebola? No. What about AIDS? AIDS only kills, you know, 14,000, 16,000 a year. What about handguns? Handguns, even if you throw in into suicides, you know, pile it on up, right? 35,000, 38,000 people a year. I mean, People talk about, okay, we want to register handguns and well, forget registering and take guns away from people. And here you've got something government run insurance program kills 180,000 Americans every year. Of course, every hospital is registered. Of course, every doctor is registered. Of course, every nurse is licensed. They even got down to, I think, they're licensing nurses' aides now. All the the drugs are licensed, of course. But what's the plan for this? Expand it. Expand it. Everyone should be covered under a Medicare-like program. I've actually heard people say that. And so then we have what? We've got Obamacare, which is now we have the government running and overseeing all of the insurance programs, basically usurping this authority, by the way, from the states. so the real deal is government killing. That is the concept. And so the first step, of course, would be to abolish the death penalty. Why? Because what you're really abolishing, is not about whether a criminal lives or dies. It's about giving your government the authority to kill its citizens. And so if you first abolish the death penalty, and if you establish the government does not have the authority to kill any of its citizens for any reason, then that means the government would have to take away from doctors and hospitals and drug companies the right to kill. How do we know the government has created the right to kill in hospitals, doctors, and drug companies, just to name a few? Because when they cause a death, It's totally taken out of the criminal system, treated in the civil system as a malpractice case. It's treated as if you stole someone's car or as if you damaged their um, house or something. So death, killing, in the medical context is not treated as a crime. It is not a criminal offense. And that's why 880,000 people are killed every year because everybody involved in the killing knows that they will never at any point ever be charged with a criminal offense. It will never, ever be a crime. At best, a company staffed by people they have never met will write a check to whoever they are accused of killing. And so this is really what's going on. This is the actual true impact of the death penalty, the true reason for the death penalty. So what's a person to do? The first thing is to understand that each time you undergo anesthesia, you are submitting to a punishment, if you will, more severe than the death penalty. And you have to ask yourself, Am I willing to submit to this? I mean, just because the doctors, my executioners, talk so nicely to me, just because everyone's wearing cute uniforms, just because I'm in uh, a hostile-type setting, am I being lulled into complacency, Lulled into feeling that I'm in a life-affirming situation doing something that's going to make me healthier when actually what I'm doing is going to uh, make me sicker. And so this is is the real deal. This is what's going on. And it's because people, (coughs) excuse me, take a look at their decision, the decision of whether or not to have surgery As something that they're doing to improve their life, to improve their outcome, to improve their health, when actually this is something that is no healthier, in fact, 10 times more damaging, 10 times more dangerous than the death penalty itself. And a lot of times, the first step towards protecting yourself is realizing where the true hazard lies. What is really killing you? What is really the threat in your life? And this is the error, the error in perception, the error in judgment that leads people to aid, bet, facilitate, even expedite their own demise. You cannot kill 880,000 people without their total and complete cooperation. This is what we're looking at. And so you're asking yourself, would you voluntarily sign into death row? Would you voluntarily go down to the, house, the, the courthouse, knock on the door, meet with the judge and say, you know, judge, would you sign me up for death row? And, and by the way, doctor, or Judge, when uh, the executioner injects me, would you – here's my insurance card. Would you be sure that my executioner gets paid? I want to make sure I get all my debts paid before I, before I go. I mean, would you really do that? Now, if you did that, you might die and you might not. And chances are, actually, like I said, half a percent per year is your chances of dying that way. Whereas the other hand, if you go for general anesthesia, your chances per year are 5%. Very nice. But if you're not the kind of guy or gal that would go down to the courthouse, beg the judge to please slap a death sentence on you, because maybe you think it's risky. Maybe you think getting a death sentence is risky. And I, I get you, I feel you, it's okay, I got it. But if you wouldn't do that, why would you sign up for Medicare? If you wouldn't do that, why would you even accept life-saving surgery? I mean, it's an oxymoron, not possible. It's worse than a death penalty. So this is the problem. As I said, people make deadly decisions thinking that they're life-affirming, and people perceive safety where there's great risk. And as I promised you a joke, I actually wrote a joke. Two so guys are talking First guy says, uh, my doctor recommended surgery. Second guy says, hey, what are you going to do? First guy says, I think I'll sign into death row. They had better outcomes. And that's it. That's the truth of the matter. Better outcomes on death row with a death sentence than in a modern-day hospital with general anesthesia. Now, this is only because we've measured outcomes a year After anesthesia, and what's the mechanism of death? The mechanism of death is that in order to get you to sleep and prevent this choking and sputtering and carrying on for 13 minutes uh, that they have on death row, your anesthesiologist has to give you an incredible dose, drug dose, literally many times the lethal dose in order to get you to sleep. And the only reason you don't die right there on the spot is because the anesthesiologist is, is breathing for you and you are basically on life support. Now, what happens when the, when the doctor wakes you up, the anesthesiologist, when he wakes you up and you're breathing for the next 24 hours, that's it, out of his hands, hey, I did my job, put him to sleep, woke him up. Um, literally, your body undergoes a very long, very extensive recovery process in order to get you to sleep and keep you from twitching while you are being sliced upon, um, it is a incredible assault to your immune system. And recovering from this assault is the true recovery. I had surgery actually too many times, uh, four to be precise, and my last surgery, it took eight weeks just for the incision to heal, enough for me to get around without pain. But there was another more subtle recovery, recovery of my brain, of my muscles, that really took, I can definitely say, easily a full year. And during that process, as I watched my body struggle to regain its previous level of function, I made up my mind I would never again undergo surgery. I don't care. if The doctor told me I was going to die in the spot. I'd say, thank you. It's been a great life. And in retrospect, every one of my emergency surgeries, doctor told me it was an emergency, told me it had to be done, was totally unnecessary. And it takes a lot of balls, it takes a lot of breath to either, A, decide you're not going to show up, you know, well, it's very bad pain, I'm not going to the hospital, or to go to the hospital or have some uh, well-meaning friend take you and decide that, you know what, we're going to pass we're not going to do this we're just going to pass on this then that is uh, that's what has to be done and you've got to do what you've got to do to pull yourself together and get together the courage to realize I mean take a look at the facts and have the courage to behave according to the facts rather than according to propaganda According to terms like life saving, according to terms like health care. So, an item that is avowedly unhealthy and certainly uncaring is administered and labeled as health care. And so, you have to ignore these labels and realize that it's not health care, it's simply this. It's this or that. And this, which is, we'll call it general anesthesia or anesthesia, carries a 4% death rate in the first year. What is it the second year? I don't know. They didn't measure it. No data. But the first year, 4%. That's if you're healthy. That's this. What's that? That would be a death penalty, a death sentence. Most people, in their mind, death sentence, uh uh-uh. No. Not going to do that. So if you wouldn't take a death sentence, you definitely shouldn't take anesthesia. And you can decide for yourself what you think uh, how you feel about a death sentence. It's actually easier, well, not the easier, but certainly healthier to uh, submit to a death sentence. All right, ready for questions. We have got 13 minutes left. Let's take a look in the chat room here. <laughs> all right. Dr. Daniels, does this apply at all to the kind of local anesthesia given in dental office, office? The answer is yes. Yes. Um, and you're talking about dentist offices. This is a special case. So the dentist gives a lot of anesthesia locally, very close to the brain. So um, they have not studied, um, and I have not looked at, the death rate from local anesthesia given in a dentist office. I am aware historically, when I've looked at this uh, for dentists, that the rate of death for general anesthesia or um, in a dentist's office, it has historically been very high. I'm not sure about recent changes in policies or standards of care. Last time I looked at it was uh, more than 10 years ago, so I I don't have recent numbers on that. So years ago I thought the effects of the shots they gave me lasted several weeks. That would be true. No one took me seriously. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it wasn't to their advantage to take you seriously. But, yes, it's a tremendous amount of anesthesia uh, that they inject, and the effects can last for weeks. Okay, if people forego insurance, how would you handle serious injuries like a car accident or work accident or so-and-so? Okay, the thing to understand about car accidents and about work accidents is all of these things are going to improve over time with or without medical care, and they will improve a lot better without medical care. That's the thing to understand. Um, Let's just talk about uh, a stroke. A lot of people feel that a stroke is a big deal. So if you have a stroke, by golly, that's, that's a major catastrophic event. And got to go to the hospital. The truth of the matter is, when you have a stroke, you go to the hospital, they just lay you in a bed, pump you full of drugs, and actually interfere with the healing process. So if you have someone who's had a stroke, and they're able to breathe on their own, and they're able to uh, drink water, then there's really nothing to be gained by going to the hospital. You can simply feed the person more water, probably very quickly there on the spot, and reverse the stroke yourself and just save yourself the trip to the hospital and the $10,000, $20,000, or $50,000. <clears> also, once you go to the hospital for a stroke, nowadays, the standard of care is to give you a cholesterol-lowering drug, which does what? Increases your chances of stroke and having a second stroke in the hospital. So what happens then when you go to the hospital for a stroke is you get drugs that cause more strokes. So... Um, The big deal that people don't understand or have difficulty grasping, which is um, an almost unimaginable thing, is that for most injuries of any kind, medical intervention actually makes the injury worse. It does not improve it. That's number one. Number two, if for whatever reason you feel medical intervention might be needed, um, generally you can um, defer, delay safely that medical intervention for days, weeks, months, even years. So uh, if you have a work accident, uh, your best bet is to, uh, you know, take your lumps, go home. A lot of times the most jobs that have any kind of work-related anything, um, in other words, that have a certain amount of danger or have a certain size of workforce, they actually have a nurse on site. And so if you need a nurse to document your injury, um, because you plan to maybe get insurance of some kind in the future. Mm, that's a possibility. You might want to do that. But I would challenge anyone to forego any and all of that. Skip the workers' comp stuff. Skip all of it. Just let your body heal and go on with your life. In fact, you know, quit your job. Get laid off and do and retrain for a field that's, A, safer, or, B, that you can do with your disability. Um, You know, I had a friend who was injured severely in a um, motorcycle accident as a young person. And as a result, had to drop out of college, um, had a limp, I mean, obviously disabled. In fact, he was uh, categorized as, I think, 60% disabled. And instead of applying for any kind of aid or whatever, he just went on with his life and did things that did not require um a perfect uh gate and end up ended up uh you know amassing several million dollars working um so this is all an illusion these uh workers comp things auto accidents these are all an illusion to get you to submit your life to supervision and regimentation and uh That's that's what I would say. Okay. What brand of water distiller to remove fluoride? All water distillers remove fluoride. I would recommend a water distiller that distills and then in the final stage drips the water through a carbon filter. And really, um, distillation is pretty straightforward. That's really all you need. I've had several different water distillers in my life, several different brands, um, I all I can say is the used water stores I bought have lasted longer than the ones I purchased new. That I can tell you. Garlic capsules. I recommend you buy organic garlic powder and pack your own. Okay. <laughs> okay. So someone in the in the chat room says free kill. Wow. Yeah, you get a free pass, and if the person. Um, Is killed in the medical system then they get to pay for their own killing which is like pretty cool all right we have a question here your question please
0: oh can you hear me not is it me
1: yes I can hear you Mm
0: -hmm. yes yeah my name is Al I called before uh, and Mm -hmm. concerning uh, stroke um, Mm -hmm. I've I started the milk thistle that you that you recommended, but I'm also interested in finding out if you have information uh on reversing the weakness on my left side uh from damage due to the stroke. The weakness and numbness.
1: Ah, uh, okay. So how are you doing with the milk thistle?
0: I uh, started last week, it's doing pretty good.
1: Uh I don't no, have you're uh better.
0: I am feeling better.
1: All right, excellent. All right, so important thing about the milk thistle is the milk thistle um, is cleaning out those connections in your brain that tell your arm or, or tell your left side what to do. So you need to be patient with that, with the milk thistle dose. You can also just kind of inch that up a little higher, a little higher. Anywhere from one to three tablespoons uh, is a pretty good dose. And if you're trying to reverse a stroke, you've got a lot of junk to clean out of your blood. And as you clean your blood, the impurities in your brain will dissolve and they'll go out through your liver and through a bowel movements. so you have to stay focused um, you want to literally reverse the stroke so that you have as much control over one side of your body as the other and then um, you can work on more strengthening stuff and so it sounds like you're still in the clean-out phase so you have to be patient get rid of this get through the clean-out phase where you literally feel that you have as much control over one side of your body as another. Maybe do dexterity exercises or something like that or massages on that affected side, say, with castor oil. But you want to clean that side out first because strengthening is the opposite of cleansing. And so if you try and strengthen and cleanse at the same time, then you could find yourself, you know, basically going in circles. So I would stick with what you're doing for now. That, That would be the best thing.
0: So you're saying basically that I should continue what I'm doing uh, and avoid doing any type of strenuous exercise? Uh,
1: no, the exercise is fine. It's actually, um, exercise is actually irrelevant. I would personally avoid doing exercise because what's going on, once you're the milk of on board, is your body's actually working harder to heal. And you want to deploy that energy as much as possible towards healing. So if you want to do exercise, I would do exercise. But more more um, moderate to easy exercise because all you want to do is, is send brain signals from your brain to that affected limb to strengthen that pathway, to use that pathway, and to tell your immune system, hey, fix this pathway. You know, heal here first.
0: Okay, doc. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. You're welcome. Ah, uh, your question?
2: Yes, good night. Hello? Yes, hello. Hello? Hey, Dr. Douglas. Yes, Daniel, I can hear you. Night. Yeah, I'm calling mm-hmm. to tell you two things. One, thank you for doing the show for us on Saturday. That was very nice. And ah, you Really appreciate it. Then, secondly, talking about stroke, uh, one mm-hmm. day I was going to the beach and then I got a phone call and it was this guy. His name is. Donald Kinsey, he used to play lead guitar mm-hmm. for Bob Marley and the Whale House. So mm-hmm. he was telling me something. So then I started to talk to him. So he said, listen, I can't talk too much because I have an emergency. I'm on my way to the hospital. So I said, Donald, I to you you're sick. He said, no, um, the family is meeting at the hospital because my uncle had a bad stroke and they don't mm-hmm. think he's going to make it. So I said, Donald, when you go to the hospital, tell the nurse or the doctor, Put him in a hyperbaric chamber for like a half an hour. He said, "What?" I said, "A hyperbaric chamber." He said, "What's that? How do you spell it?" So let me pull off the road and write it down. So anyway, he went about his business, and then about a month or so later, he called me. I called him. So when I finished talking, then said, "Okay, I see." I said, "But wait, what happened to your uncle, who had a massive stroke?" in a wheelchair or um, this is my uncle. I said, yeah, the one you told me.
1: Yeah, we've only got 90 yeah, I mean, seconds, so did you have a question? Yeah,
2: but anyway, yeah, they gave him the, put him in the hyperbaric chamber and he told me that he had no side effects. He was as normal as ever. So I ah, wanted good. to know what you think about that.
1: I think it's great. I think, uh, you know, there are many ways to reverse a stroke. Um, like in the United States, we don't have hyperbaric uh, chambers generally in hospitals, so that would not be an option.
2: Okay, so the best thing to do is drink water if you don't have none of that
1: option? In the, yeah, in the United States, drink water. And I've seen strokes reverse literally on the spot in minutes. But this, someone has a stroke, you call the ambulance, sit there, trill your thumbs, wait, oh, my God. Then they get taken to the hospital, wait some more, trill your thumbs, and you've got a disaster. But if you notice someone's having a stroke and you give them water immediately, then that takes care of it. And
2: then what happens when the person cannot talk for a long while after they have had this show? Well, what to do to I'm be called that?
1: I'm telling you, you got to intervene right there. But let's say you didn't intervene right there. And let's say they've gone the whole hospital thing, now you've got them home and they're not talking. Is that what you're saying? Right, exactly. Usually they're able to drink. Yeah. So you get them something. You, you just increase their hydration. As with the fire caller, you start milk thistle, And you start cleaning out that blood, and it'll it'll reverse uh, their brain damage.
2: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Doc. You have a nice evening, and I thank you so much for what you're doing.
1: Okay. You're welcome. All right. All right. That is it. We are done. Our time is up. As always, think happens. And we'll see you next week with another exciting episode.